In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Welcome to this edition of Money Tales. Cami here. Today, we're talking to a meaning junkie. Our guest, Marlies Jansen, is founder and CEO of Grada. There, she uses her experience as a licensed psychotherapist and as a sixth-generation member of a financially successful family to help clients navigate their financial and emotional worlds. As she discusses, Marlies has always been fascinated by where wealth meets psychology. This is Sandy. Earlier in life, Marlies observed parts of her family being torn apart by money disagreements that became personal. Marlies learned from this the importance of putting values and relationships in front of money matters. That's why Marlies is laser-focused on the meaning of one's life and how wealth fits into the picture. During the conversation, Marlies shares what it was like to first learn about and interact with her family office. If you're wondering what a family office is, be sure to listen to the financial insight at the end. But first, here's our conversation with Marlies Jansen. Welcome, Marlies Jansen, to Money Tales. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Super. Well, my name is Cami Doder, and I'm here with Sandy Brager. And we'd like to really just start things off by asking you, if you would, provide us with a brief summary of sort of your journey to this time, to this moment, and share possibly one or two, maybe even three pivotal moments that you've experienced in your life journey. Okay. Well, let's see. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I've always been interested in how humans create meaning and make decisions and also in human relationships. I was probably one of the dorkiest kids in my elementary school. And actually, it was super painful. Like socially, it was super painful. But And I was a violinist. That was my thing. I was super, super serious about playing the violin. And between eighth grade and high school, I was in the Marin Youth Symphony and I played violin like probably a couple hours a day. And I did not do sports, which was really the cool thing to do. But before high school, between eighth grade and ninth grade, I was invited to go on a trip to Europe with orchestra to a music competition in Vienna, Austria. And we had to fundraise and we traveled all around Europe playing. And we actually won our category in this music competition. And on this trip, despite myself, I made all these friends and they were all kids that cared about music. And I learned that I could find my people, you know, and that was a super powerful experience. So in college, I studied cultural anthropology and I've just always been interested in humans and meaning and culture. And after college, I worked for a company that provided people with 24 hour telephone access to a registered nurse, like 
kind of an advice nurse service. And while it was my job to kind of work with clients and develop the product features and, and all of that, what I really found myself interested in is what it was that was making the service work. And I realized that it wasn't health information that people needed. They needed somebody to talk to in the middle of the night when the baby had a fever. They needed somebody that they trusted. And we were not selling health information. We were selling trust and care and intangibles. And so because I cared about these intangibles, I decided to go to psychology grad school and started. And then I took a dog leg to the left and got married and had kids and stayed home with my kids for 11 years. And that is a super important part of my journey, staying home with kids, because I include it as a really important part of my career development, because it gave me the opportunity to consider how we value people and what we deem to be work. Stay-at-home parenthood is a privilege of wealth that draws both envy and shame. (laughs) Because people don't consider it to be a real job. And so there was all this like, I'd been working at this company for 10 years and been traveling and had this sort of corporate life. And then I had this stay-at-home life and I was trying to integrate it all and figure out what I cared most about. So when I returned to graduate school, I was going through my orientation in the beginning of grad school and the person giving the orientation said, don't think that you can graduate with a master's in psychology and have a job. There are a hundred therapists between here and the next corner. You have to be what's called an edupreneur. You have to figure out what you want to do and tailor your education toward that. And I thought for about negative three seconds, and I knew that I wanted to work at the intersection of psychology and wealth. And so I went to my teachers and I said, I want to think about the impact of wealth on psychology. And one by one, they said, oh, we got to go. We got nothing for you. And it's such, it's so weird because this American Psychological Association tracks money as being people's biggest stressor time and time again. And it drives divorce. It does all kinds of stuff. And yet in a psychology grad program, none of the teachers could address it. They could barely talk about how they as practicing therapists set their fees. And so I read in the New York Times about an organization called the Financial Therapy Association. And I said to myself, I don't care who these people are. I'm just going to go and hang out with them. And again, the same thing happened. It was like finding my people, like I did when I was in that orchestra. And I found people that were talking about the meaning of wealth. And I was like so excited. And I met a guy by the name of Ted Klontz, who has an organization called the Financial Psychology Institute. And in Nashville, Tennessee. And he had a program that ended up being picked up by Hyder Business School. It was a certificate program in financial psychology and behavioral finance. And so I ended up doing that. And so I feel like I've just been following breadcrumbs since I started, but really focusing on the meaning of wealth for people and how they can then make that into a more successful financial experience and better financial freedom in their own lives. Marlies, there's so much to talk about regarding the intersection of wealth and psychology, and we're excited to dig into that. Before we get there, though, tell us more about your childhood and where money fit into it and how you developed in a money sense, who you learned from, what it was like for you. Let's see. I was born in New York City, and my father had a pretty traditional career on Wall Street at the time. 
And he realized, I think shortly before we left, I was six years old when we left to come to California. And I think he realized that he really was doing that to make his parents happy, to make his father happy. And what he really wanted to to do was to be an artist. (laughs) And our family had a family office in Cleveland, Ohio at the time. And we were actually expected to move to Cleveland, Ohio. And my parents went to California to visit my mother's brother and his fiance at the time and came back to New York and said, we're not going to Ohio. We're going to California, kids. So we moved to California. And what I was aware of growing up was that I wasn't really aware of money, but I was aware that my parents had a lot more control over their time than some of my peers. Their parents had much more traditional jobs and my parents were artists. I didn't know what that meant, except that it was just unconventional. (laughs) In terms of money, at a young age, my parents were iconoclasts in every sense of the word. In terms of material possessions, they were really slow to acquire things. So a lot of times, a lot of stuff that my friends had, you know, VCRs. I remember all my friends had VCRs and we didn't have a VCR and we weren't really allowed to watch TV, except we watched like one thing a week. We used to watch the Partridge family as a, as a family. So I was sort of culturally illiterate when I was younger. And, you know, my parents were artists and we had a house full of like artists and musicians all the time and kind of dorky clothes, like not the fashionable clothes. So money was this thing that didn't really, I did not know much about money until I was a teenager and I started getting my own clothing allowance. But I did know that my father would go to Cleveland once a month to work with the family office. And I knew that he was working as an artist during the day, but in the evenings, he was working really, really hard on the family business remotely. And then once a month, he would actually go to Cleveland and he would be gone to manage money. I knew that it was a money thing. That was the reason he had to go away. And I also knew that money was somehow responsible for some of the deteriorating family relationships. So I knew that there was some some connection between something that was going on with money management and family relationships. So I think I had a sense that money had some kind of relational power, but I had no idea how to address that or even how to ask questions about that. So I never was included in any kind of investing education or mentorship but my brother was. So we had a boys club in our family. My grandfather managed the family office. He was expecting my father to move to Cleveland and do the same thing. And so it was really kind of investing was a men's world. And um, so my dad did help my brother start to learn about investing when he was a young teen. But that wasn't I think he really saw that as an act of love to kind of keep me out of it because I thought, I think he just felt like that wasn't a world that I should be involved in. So I never really learned about money management. I never learned about investing. The one area of money, I guess it's not really money management, but personal finance that I did learn about was sort of the consumption because I had a clothing allowance. And so I was given, I think starting at the age of like 14, I was given a certain amount of money every month to buy my own clothes. And so I became responsible for that. But there's so much more to what we do with money and what we have to do with money than just managing our consumption. I feel like consumption is kind of the tip of the iceberg. And that was the only part that I could see 
The only thing that I got involved in was the part that I could see or the things that I needed to do with money, which were pretty limited until I became an adult. I just really wish that I had had so much more mentorship when I was younger. And that's a big part of why I'm doing what I'm doing today. This is phenomenal. And there are so many, I think we'll dive into a number of these, of what you just brought up. Talk a little bit more about the degradation of relationships that money brought to your family. Talk about what does that mean? You know, you say it, I just don't want to assume I know what that means. Well, yeah. I mean, my father was one of five kids and we were the the weirdos that moved to the West Coast and everybody else lived in Ohio or East in Boston, New York, Ohio, that area, and just had much more conservative views. And I think that, you know, when it comes to investing, you have to come up with like an investment policy or an investment strategy. And so I think that there were a lot of disagreements as to how to manage the family assets. And those disagreements became personal. So it was management versus consumption. There weren't disagreements about the consumption of it. It was more the management of it. The management, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and then I think that underneath all of that, there sort of was disagreements around consumption because there were different lifestyles amongst the different branches of the family. And I think some people were critical. And my dad was, he just didn't want to buy stuff and he didn't want to look like he had a lot of stuff. And I think that was partly him dealing with the fact that he had more resources than, he felt somewhat ashamed of the resources that he did have. <laughs> I think. So while the disagreements were really around the management, I think there was underlying judgment about how people chose to live their lives. I do think that that's true. Our family also had a piece of property that was a big part of my dad's childhood. It was in the Caribbean, a big part of my dad's childhood, a big part of my childhood. And, you know, we spent a lot of time there diving and just having wonderful family time. And when it passed to, let's see, it passed to my father's generation from his parents. It became a subject of contention who was using it more, who had to pay more for the upkeep. And ultimately they just had to sell it because they couldn't agree on how to manage it. And that was a big loss that everybody feels. So there were several splits in family offices that went from one family office to two, then to three, where people split off, different branches of the family split off and took their assets to manage them in a smaller group where they thought they could mesh more with the values of the people they were with. But it had long kind of had ramifications for people's relationships going forward. I'm in a group of 12 cousins and we are doing really well actually in putting our relationship, like making an effort to spend more time knowing each other more because we did get kind of separated a little bit and now we're trying to come back together and and I think we're doing a really good job but that's putting relationships first and so the business sometimes the money management kind of made it hard to put the relationships first that's what we're trying to right size now that's very cool we have questions about that too but I'm going to keep us focused on your childhood for a moment growing up with a brother who was the beneficiary of a lot of training and education around money and investments. And so tell us, Marlies, what was that like for you, knowing that he was benefiting from that and and it wasn't offered to you at the time? You know what? I didn't know that he was benefiting from that. It was happening completely out of my view. 
So at the time, I didn't question it. I just thought, well, this is just life, right? I, it, I didn't know that there was something he was getting that I wasn't. In fact, I didn't know that until we were adults and we talked about what childhood was like for us. And so what happened was I grew up doing a very, very little bit of money management around a clothing allowance, right? And get to adulthood and I am not equipped to make decisions that I need to make as a young adult. And that's where I became really motivated to help other families not get into that situation. One question on the allowance, when it was given to you, what did that feel like coming from a family where there wasn't a lot of emphasis on fashion or material goods? And it sounds like there was sort of freedom in the opportunity to make those decisions for yourself. How did you make those decisions? Do you recall? Yeah, well, I was kind of a normal 14 year old girl in that sense. Like I watched for certain brands and things. And my one thing my parents were really good at is honoring each of their kids for who they were. And so I knew that my father in particular was kind of scornful of paying attention to something as frivolous as fashion. But he also knew that I was a normal kid and that that's what kids do. And so it felt like it was really exciting to have my own, like I didn't have to ask them if I could get whatever or get a Fiorucci, remember that brand Fiorucci, a Fiorucci t-shirt. And I didn't have to ask anymore. I could just do it. And then, you know, I had to deal with running out of money, which I did, and then come back and figure out how to make it last. Those can be very invaluable learnings as well, can't they? Yeah. So then let's focus in on the time period where you're sort of craving all of this education that you didn't pick up on your own and you became interested more in this intersection of psychology and wealth. What were some of the things that you were learning early on that compelled you to move forward in the search for that knowledge? I think what were the things I learned that compelled me to move forward? That the intersection of meaning and decision-making, that the way we make decisions about resources, money is a survival resource and it's symbolic of a lot of things. And so from the psychology point of view, I just got very, very fascinated by thinking about what money symbolized and what an acquisition symbolized and what a lifestyle symbolized and why people had certain money personalities, like why somebody was a spender and somebody else was a saver, and how could you have that in the same family? And so I got intellectually, I think, completely just obsessed with thinking about the human side of wealth and the human side of money, because every single person on this earth has to deal with money. And so whether you have it or don't have it or gain it or lose it, it has a human impact. And that human impact is what really, really fascinates me still today. Okay. I'm going to move us to you're out of your youth. You're getting exposed. When you get to college, like when are you starting to really make money decisions, making, you know, where you think you're taking control and then how did that feel? So in college, I didn't make a ton of money decisions because I was living in like a dorm. I ate at a dining hall, college dining hall. My parents paid my tuition, 
But one money decision that I was thinking about this last night, I decided I was going out to buy a TV. And remember, I wasn't really allowed to watch TV before I got to college. So I was like, I'm going to get a TV. And I went out with one of my roommates and she had access to a car because she grew up in Boston. And so she could drive to the electronic store. What we went to was, and we bought a TV that I think it was probably about 26 inches, but we got it home to our dorm room and it looked massive. Like it took up the whole wall and it felt very powerful. I felt very powerful, like being able to buy a TV. I was like, wow. And then all kinds of people started coming by because most people didn't have big TVs in their dorms, you know? And so we had this Twin Peaks club. So we used to watch Twin Peaks and we had a whole group of people who would come every time. But one of the things that I realized, first of all, I felt powerful being able to buy a TV and I felt a little bit exposed, like, oh, I, I just did something that kind of exposes me as different. And then I also noticed that socially my life changed when the TV showed up. So somehow there was some connection between having that thing and who wanted to be in my dorm room. And that was an interesting, like, hmm, what is it about an acquisition? How is that going to change my social life? And why is it more than just, do people want me for what I have? Or I don't know. It was just, it made me start thinking about standing out with a thing that other people didn't have, but also how social life changed after I got it. How did that impact you? Did you start acting differently? Were there feelings that you were having that you hadn't experienced before in your life? It didn't, I don't think I acted differently, but I definitely felt more exposed. Like I started, it was the first time I thought, wow, I have resources here that not everybody has. And how do I feel about that? And I felt kind of embarrassed and ashamed. Like I hadn't thought about that before in such a way. And it definitely it was the first time I started thinking about like, what does it mean that I have these resources and what do I do about it? <laughs> you know? And at that point in your life, Marley, were you aware of the entirety of the resources that you had available to you? I got a monthly stipend, right? From my parents. It was a lot bigger than my monthly allowance when I lived at home. I had enough that I could like go out to restaurants or I could go out to coffee. And, you know, I wasn't aware of any kind of trusts or anything like that. That wasn't in my consciousness, but I was aware that what I had available to me by the month was more than what some of the other students had. So your folks weren't talking to you about the family office. They weren't talking to you about any of this. This wasn't part of the conversation. Yeah, I knew the family office was there, but I didn't really fully understand what it did. I just thought it sent me a little bit of money every month. It wasn't until after college that I started meeting with folks at the family office. And so I never took part in meetings before that. And so I didn't really know what a family office was, frankly. Can you tell us about that process of the discovery of how things worked? Yeah. After college, I came back. I was going to get an apartment, get a job. And my dad said, well, you, you know, have access to some money now. And you can work with the family office to figure out what is a reasonable amount to pay for rent. And so I started having more regular contact with the family office. And I still feel like a little embarrassed to admit that at that time, I still kind of looked at them as an ATM. Like I had no appreciation for 
where that all came from, what it represented, all of the work and the risk and the entrepreneurial efforts and everything that brought that to the point that it was at, had no appreciation for that. What I saw it as was, here's where my monthly money comes from and I need to talk to them if I need more or not if I need more, but yes, if I need more, but also like just about planning and thinking about like what is reasonable. And, but I really thought of it as how is it helping me figure out, support me while I'm looking for a job and I got a job, but I still like use some extra money that came from there, even though I was working full time and had a salary and all of that. The process of getting to know them, it's not like I had this learning process of here's where it came from, here's what we do here, here's what everybody does here, here's what investing is. It was more like it was a very flat introduction, I call it. (laughs) I didn't understand the full situation. And, And I never did until I was asked to run the foundation which was years later. And what was that like? That was terrifying because I was sort of in my own little world, working really hard and living out of town. I was living outside Sacramento, really in my own world, like not interacting very much with the family business or knowing that was sort of happening totally outside of me, that I had no place there. That was my impression, that I had no place there. And my father took me aside one day and said, well, you know, it's about time you step up and take some leadership in this family. And I went, what does that mean? (laughs) That was terrifying. And we started talking about the family and what there's this foundation and that might be a way for me to get involved and learn more. And that was how many years ago now? I think that was about 16 years ago, 17 years ago. So I started helping with the foundation and then ultimately started uh, co-managing it along with one of my cousins. But that was the time that I started really thinking more about the family and the family history and where the philanthropic funds had come from and how to manage that for all of the family donors that we do manage them for. And I still do that on the side. So just from your personal timeline perspective, when this was happening, was it while you were going to graduate school and and learning more about psychology and focusing on the psychology of wealth? Or did that happen after you stepped into the role of the foundation? That happened after I stepped into the role of the foundation. So the role in the foundation definitely played into the aspiration that developed in graduate school as well. So when I stepped into the role of the foundation, I was at home mothering the first of my two daughters. I think it was before my second daughter was born. Marlies, this is amazing. So you really aren't talking about money. I love the analogy of the ATM, of course, if that's, there's been no relationship with what's behind the ATM. And then all of a sudden you're told, all right, we want you to step up. How did that feel? Yeah, I had no idea what that meant. And you know, now when we work with rising generation, and help them to understand what a trustee beneficiary, a healthy trustee beneficiary relationship is. We say that, you know, it's it's very common for the beneficiary to view the trustee as either an ATM or a litigation target. And what we want to do is help them avoid both of those. Fantastic. So Marlies, you've got two teenage daughters. And yeah. you mentioned that when you were a teenager, you were managing your clothing allowance budget. 
How do you have conversations about money with your kids? Since I'm a meaning junkie, I'm always trying to connect any money conversation we have to what meaning it might have, what human impact it might have. When the kids were really young, we put together a family mission statement and with the idea that anything we do should be somehow connected to that. And so we want our conversations about money to be sitting on top of what we value, what we know we value and what we agree on that we value. We talk about money as really only one form of wealth. So we embrace an expanded definition of wealth where, you know, the social networks that we have access to, that's a form of wealth. Our privilege that we have is a form of wealth. There's, you know, all of this human capital that it's a big part of the full picture. And so money is just a piece of that. Sometimes we have these, <laughs> these matching promotions with our kids where um, <laughs> we'll go on a vacation and we give them a certain amount of money to spend on the vacation. But if they don't, whatever they don't spend, we're trying to incentivize them to save. Whatever they don't spend, we'll match that at the end. And how's that working out, just out of curiosity? It works better with one than the other, typically. One is more of a spender than the other. What it does is it keeps the conversation alive about spending. And so their allowance is divided into saving, spending, and giving. And so they decided what percentage of their allowance they want to save. And so they actually have, we use a, an app on the phone that just keeps track of what those totals are, just so they know kind of what they have. Are they learning or how are they learning the investing that you said you missed out on and your brother got? How are they learning? Yeah. That? So we are doing some, so far it's been just us that have been sort of talking with them about investing and we haven't quite given them a shadow account yet to invest. That's kind of, we're just on the cusp of doing that. But we have taught them about investing. We've taught them about personal finance. Another big thing we try to do, which we connect our money to feeling gratitude for the money and the, the privilege that we do have. And, you know, just recently I was in a, this incredible place in the East Bay, Market Hall in Piedmont, which is this grocery store that has all of these delicious condiments and foods. And I just said, you know, the fact that we're even here, this is a privilege. And so I try sometimes or often when we, when we're doing something that is connected to spending money on having a money conversation, just to express the gratitude that we have. So often that's part of our money conversations is expressing gratitude. And the other thing we're doing with them, and this is a long-term project is we're having them write a personal statement about what my resources mean to me. So when I have money and I can do this, I feel that. And what I want to do with the resources I have and what I imagine my future is with my resources. And so this is a very long-term project. We started it with them like a year ago and it's moving along all oh so slowly in a journal that eventually the ideas will be put together in a personal statement. But one of the things that I think is risky about inheriting money before you have a chance to do that is if you inherit money and you don't have the chance to think about what it means to you or what you imagine you could do with it or how you could be a contributor or how, what responsibility you hold because you have it, 
then there's no way for a person to kind of, if they haven't had a chance to do that, to use it responsibly. I'm curious, how do the girls respond to this as teenagers? I think they really get it. I think it's intimidating to them to figure out how they're going to, I I do think they look at it kind of as an assignment, you know, this personal statement thing. It sounds kind of heavy, but the way we present it to them is that deciding what you're going to do with all of your resources is a really big decision. And this is something that I think we take the pressure off by saying it's a long-term project. Like we're not expecting you to have this done in a week, right? But we want to always be thinking about when we have a money decision, what's the human impact? What are we grateful for? And how do I make the best decision? And it's still okay to do something that just feels good sometimes. Like it's not everything has to be heavy, right? We can treat ourselves, but it's important. Yeah. It's an important lesson as well. Marlies, it sounds like you and your husband have been so thoughtful and intentional about raising your, your daughters to be responsible, knowledgeable stewards of the family wealth. Have you had any major challenges along the way? with money and parenting that you can share with us well, today? I mean, nobody is immune to the awkwardness and the difficulty. Like it is really hard to talk about money. And so I guess it's been hard to know how overbearing to be in the beginning. Like we don't connect chores to allowance, right? So that's, that's a philosophical thing that there's no right way to go, but we just let allowance be what we, give them. And sometimes they just spend it all on stuff that is seems. And absolutely the challenge is like, well, do you say something every time or do you just let them learn from their own mistakes? And that's been where I've come down more often than not is to just say, okay, if this is what I'm giving them, then I have to just let them make their own decisions. So I guess the challenge is trying not to be judgmental, you know, trying to really let them learn and make their own mistakes. And yeah. Is that from your growing up, your youth that you think that influences that you want to allow them to make their own mistakes because you were allowed to make your own mistakes or vice versa? You weren't? Hmm. Is it from my youth? I think part of it is from my youth because I was given a lot of freedom, but I made some mistakes I wish I hadn't made as a young adult. So. I think that as they grow older, they're 15 and 16 now, but I think as they get a little bit older, I'm going to keep talking to them about how to stay informed and save for their future and learn about all the things we want them to learn about in order to be responsible with their finances. Yeah. I think that the mistakes we make are often the ones we, we really learn the most from. And so it really resonates when you say, do you tell them? you know, don't do this or what could be the pitfalls or do you let them come to this conclusion on their own? And it's going through that is often where you learn the most. Right. I think that, you know, as parents, it's ultimately, it's our job to get out of their way and let them learn. And sometimes we use our own experience to be afraid of letting them learn their own mistakes. But that's, that's the biggest challenge is to get out of the way. I think it's a hard balancing act for sure. Yeah. So Marlise, as we come to the end of our conversation, tell us what's one thing that you haven't done in your life that you most look forward to doing? Oh my gosh. So I think there are two things, one personal and one professional, although I think that they will come together. One is that I want, you know, I have been doing this David White 
three Sundays of David White virtual program. And I was so inspired when he talked about the Camino de Santiago, like being a pilgrim. And there was a whole lot of talk about this. And, and I would love to walk the Camino de Santiago and just see what that experience is like. I think it would just be a, an amazing experience of figuring out what is most meaningful to me. And I would love to do that with my husband. But Professionally, I would really love to offer money mindfulness programs for youth in the Bay Area. I've been actually talking about ways to do that with some people because I'm working with families now. And if I had had a program like the one I'm thinking about to really explore some of these things and think about money and my relationship to money and how I use money, how I want to use money, how I want to earn money all of the things that I would have loved to think about when I was younger, I think the families of those people, if they do have families, would be different. I don't know of anything that's available that really looks at all of these, the sort of the money meaning stuff with, with younger people. And I'd really love to be able to do that. What's your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with? Aha. So... I think my next money conversation is going to be with my husband and older daughter. She loves horses and she wants a horse like nobody's business. And we have never been able to see how that would work financially for us to be able to own a horse, board a horse. And so right now she leases a horse part-time, but she is getting to the age where we want to include her more in all of the financial ramifications of horse riding and horse ownership. And she's starting to show. And so the next money conversation really is going to be about her goals with horses as she kind of finishes out high school and starting to understand how much she might want to devote knowing the full picture of what it is to own and ride horses because we've never been able to justify that. But I know that we're not going to get the horse out of this girl. So it's going to be part of her future. So we're going to start talking about that from a financial perspective. Seems like some great money lessons there. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's money quandaries too. Like mm -hmm. it's not going to be easy to solve that, but it's, it'd be good for her to kind of start thinking about it more than just riding and caring for the animal, but thinking about it from the financial perspective too, of what it takes to be able to have that privilege. Well, be sure to, to report back to us. Let us know how the conversation goes. Sounds <laughs> okay. like a good one. I will. Marlies Jansen, thank you so much for being our guest on Money Tales. This is a really great conversation. We appreciate you sharing all of your life experience and your insights and, and ideas around relationships and the meaning of money. You're absolutely welcome. I've had such a good time. A treat for me. Thank you, Marlies. Hi, Money Tales listeners. It's Cami here with a personal finance insight. During our conversation, Marlies Jansen referred to her family office. If you're not familiar with it, a family office is a dedicated team of individuals that a family hires to professionally manage the complexity of their family's wealth. Typically, the family office will be a separate legal entity that is owned and controlled by the family. While each family office is unique, family offices typically provide a variety of services, including bill pay and expense management, lifestyle and household staffing services, executive assistance support, investment management, income tax return preparation, 
and philanthropic management. Some family offices support a single family unit, while others manage multiple generations of a family. Running a family office can be extremely expensive. The Ernst & Young Family Office Guide indicates that the cost is well in excess of $1 million per year. As such, many families choose to outsource their family office needs to a wealth management firm when they find that to be more efficient and cost-effective. Our firm, Experient, for example, is what is called a multifamily office. We serve a number of clients with family office capabilities, so each family is effectively outsourcing the work to Experient versus setting up and managing everything themselves. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.